0: It's not the same without Suzanne here? No. Would anybody like me to include anybody in prayers? Yeah. Oh, yeah, her daughter-in-law,
1: and there's some fear for the kids. I mean, there's oh. a lot going on in
0: the family. Just Paulette. Paulette and her family, there. yeah. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, <coughs> thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, your presence with us always, for those who are at the Mass uh, receiving you, I mean, in flesh. Um, the miracle of carrying you, um, your divine life in us, uh, for your great gift to us. Thank you. I um, ask a blessing on Paulette and her family. Um, sounds like the difficulties are deep. Um, Whatever is happening in her family, Let whatever suffering, or pains, or struggles, whatever disorders or illnesses um, um, as they are for all of us, trials, let those trials bring that family together to grow closer, whatever they face, um, and um, let those trials be a means of their drawing closer to you, trusting more in you. Let it be so for all of us. Um, particularly in the difficulties that we face. i help us to turn them to graces. The graces are always offered. Um, you do nothing but try to bring a greater goodness. Uh, part of what you do is to bring a greater goodness out of um, the difficulties that we face and so often create for ourselves to bring good out of evil. Let it be so for all of us. Um, I ask for everybody's prayers for Suzanne. She's undergoing a colonoscopy this morning. Um, Pray for her, please. Um, We've just finished one of the most amazing Shakespeare plays. Um, It's all about miracles. And what the play makes clear is so much more is going on right before our eyes than we usually see. Let all the work that we're doing in this literature open our eyes, take away the blindness, help us to feel those things that so often um, we don't, sadly. And help us to bring whatever changes these things produce in us to all that we do with each other. Um, We ask all of this um, in you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Hi, Tom. Linda, coming? Uh,
2: yeah, she's a little delayed.
0: Um, did everybody get a book? Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I got more of Yeah, it is. I it mean, it's. Um, does everybody have a book? Other books are on the way, so in the next few days we should. Jared has been getting the texts from Amazon and they ran out but he's gone directly to Ignatius Press and they're expected to be here any day, so there will be other books coming. Um, just for your curiosity, you want this book, Okay. go to, <laughs> go to, page, go to page 661. Go to page six sixty one. There's an interesting essay in there that you might want to read.
1: After you've read the whole book, that is.
0: Actually, it would be good to read it before the book because it will sort of. Um, here, put. I'm just. I'm just bragging for a moment. I shouldn't. <laughs> um, Um, here's what we're going to do next week. I don't want to try to wrap up Winter's Tale because there's too much going on and I wasn't aware of the poor quality of the film. Um, I think if the quality had been better, you would have gotten more out of it. Um, So rather than try to tie up the movie today, what I'd like to do is cover a good number of things that took place in the movie. And I'd like to put off dealing with the end, the chapel scene where Leontes and Hermione are reconciled next week because there's, there's a lot going on there having to do with art and how the power of art, she's a statue, you know, what Shakespeare's doing, with what Paulina, who's a sort of poet figure, she's working with art. Um, the analogies between what she does and what a poet does. There's so much going on there that I want to look at because it all takes the form of a miracle. Something amazing has happened. So what I'd like to do is carry over our work to next week. We'll finish Winter's Tale next week and next week I'll, I'll spend half of our time together going over some background stuff dealing with Moby Dick. And I'll read some of the, I'll read some passages from the opening of Moby Dick just to get you going, um, so you get a sense of it. And we won't get into the book very much because I'll just, most of it will be background, but it, it'll help get you guys going. And then the following week we'll be into Moby Dick, and then I'm, I'm assuming that we'll spend about six weeks on it. That's, that's more time than we've spent. We didn't spend six weeks on an epic, did we? Did we? Oh, Dante. Uh, three months well, Dante's another yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean the the, the Odyssey and the we didn't do we, One month? Usually about a month, yeah. This is just a much more complicated work. And I don't wanna I don't wanna labor you guys too much. But on the other hand, there's so much that's going on. In some ways this book speaks more directly to us than even Dante. And you know that Dante was speaking directly to us as a commercial republic. This one is speaking more directly to us because it's America, and I really believe that that Melville is—I've said this before—exercising Protestant demons. I don't know how else to put it. He's really taking on Calvin and the whole Protestant seaboard. If you know anything about history, you know in the 19th century the the eastern seaboard, seaboard, which had been Protestant from its beginnings, our foundings are Protestant. Um, that whole culture and the theology behind it is in collapse. It's a crisis. It's just a. It's a. It's a real crisis for America. And Hawthorne and Melville are the ones who speak most directly to that crisis, and it's religious. It's absolutely religious in nature. So there's a lot to learn about ourselves from Moby Dick. So we'll we'll start it. We won't really begin to get into it directly and thoroughly until the following week and then we'll spend probably six weeks on it, so, okay. Um, if um, if you guys have not made donations for the printing, um, we would always appreciate donations, just put the money over there. Um, Bev has brought breakfast again for us, thank you Bev, and um, we have some coffee so, let's let's start. I think that's. I really am discombobulated when Suzanne's not here, because she. She's not only taking care of part of it; she's always <laughs> reminding me. So, um, I think we're okay. Okay, I want to. I want to do. I wanna do I wanna to try to bring two things together this morning that are gonna to point towards our last class on Tale next week that have to do with art. So let me let me do this. things together that we've talked about off, often, actually. But I've but never put them together in quite this way, so this is going to take a little bit of doing. Um, from the very beginning, in our first month or two together, um, I've been talking about poetry as a, as a form of natural revelation that's on this side of the biblical tradition. And I remember in the opening talks that we had talking about the importance of um, participation. And I remember encouraging everybody not to let the fact that you couldn't read a book keep you from coming. Um, because, I th- and I think that's been true for lots of people. I don't know that everybody reads things thoroughly. Because um, you're not used to it, for one thing, and, and you know, out of out of shape with those sorts of things. Um, and lots of people don't read literature. You read lots of things, but literature's not high on the list. And I remember saying that it was really, even though I, I didn't want to discourage anybody, I remember telling everybody, it was really important to read the books if you could, because if you don't read them, what you get are ideas in your heads. And I used the analogy with the Eucharist at that time and I used it speaking very very seriously because it's a very serious thing to me the difference between somebody knowing about Christ yeah in the mind and somebody taking the Eucharist and believing that that's the real presence I hope it's clear those two things are very different right you can um, talk about having a heart attack Having a heart attack is a very, very different thing. One's an idea in the mind, the other is an actual experience. Yeah? We all know that um, how important experiences are because as we get older, hopefully our experiences teach us something. And they have a greater effect on us than reading books about things. Because books about things give us ideas. And I've argued this before, it's not a small thing for me. The modern mind tends to live in ideas, in abstractions. It, the things that we read tend to remove us from the world. Um, science, I've argued, puts us in a world of abstractions. All modern philosophies, all modern philosophies, are, are, tend to be, almost all of them, are idealist. They go back to Descartes and Kant if you knew anything about the, the, uh, the philosophic tradition going back to Plato and Aristotle and St. Augustine and Thomas and into the modern world with Descartes and Kant and Heidegger and the rest you know that with Descartes something happens because Descartes makes the ideas that we have more important than things so that's a juncture, that's a, that's a watershed moment that's a turning away from the realist prof- tradition that came to its perfection with St. Thomas, and turns it, and he, it, it's picked up with Kant, who was so upset by what Descartes did, but he, he would, it defined everything that Kant did. Kant says, all that we can know are the ideas in our heads. We, because what's in our mind is, is, um, what do they call it? It's, it's, it's mental, it's, it's not material. Right? What's outside of us is the material world. What's in our head is non-material, so there's a there's a disjuncture. It didn't stop Thomas. Thomas says what we know are things. We know them through ideas, but we know things, actual things. So we have a way of, we have a way of getting into touch with things, actually be, becoming unified, taking them into us. In the modern world, that stopped. The whole modern world believes that what we know are ideas, um, not things. So. There's so much about the modern mind that, in, that um, encourages a separation from the world. We tend to live in ideas knowing about things, but we don't experience them. And you know from our readings that I've argued again and again that the, the kind of knowledge that poetry gives us is knowledge by experience. It takes us back into the world, but it does it through a form gives us a form, and something about the way that form is shaped um, makes clear something in that work that takes us beyond the work itself. That was an awful way of putting it. Um, Remember, the the poet is always the one who brings us back into the world, sets us in a story that's familiar, that, that appears to us exactly the way the world does. People move about, they have conversations, they have dialogue, there are trees and birds and we're back in that world and we're experiencing it not as ideas but as experience but something about the way he he creates that form reveals something else besides what's there to our senses And in that sense he's answer, or the artist is, is answering Plato remember here we are in the cave we're all chained There are these figures up and back carrying these books and the light from them casts these shadows. So, we live in a world of appearances. We take the appearances, those things that are present to our senses, as what's real. And Plato says that there's something more real beyond, and the challenge of the poet is whether he can take us back into this random world as as we experience it, but reveal this other world working in it. Yeah, we've gone through this before, again and again, yeah. So, this person questions things and he actually comes out of the cave and when he sees that that what he took as reality isn't reality, but this is, he tries to come back and help people see that what they think they know um, isn't true. That there's something they're not seeing. And people get so irritated at him showing them that they're really wrong and that they finally kill him. You know, that's the, the great uh, contribution that Plato made through Socrates. Um, <clears throat> the grave danger the poet presents to us is that he can present a world in terms of appearances, the way we see things, so um, we watch Leontes um, greet Polixenes, and Polixenes is about ready to leave and go home, and he asks Hermione to try to persuade him because Polonix Polixenes won't listen to him. That's exactly how it unfolds in life. We watch that, and it's familiar to us because it could have happened to us. We say goodbye to a friend coming, you know. When Leontes goes mad in that moment, when he when he has that um, flash of jealousy. I'm assuming that every one of us in this room have had moments like that where something will strike us inside. It may not overwhelm us, but we will feel jealousy or envy or whatever the emotion is that, that, we, that we become aware of. We know those things. That's, that's exactly the way it happens in life. The great danger is that a poet can be so convincing in the way he presents appearances that we can get stuck there, and his criticism, is his, his challenge is, unless the poet can show this in the random world, then we end up getting stuck here in the cave. So the great challenge was to come up. Participation is important because um, it can change us. There's a difference between knowing about contrition or knowing about forgiveness, that it's a good thing to do. It's another thing to go through a story like Winter's Tale and actually, experience um, the, the, the horrible suffering that's produced by somebody wrongly accusing another person when Leontes accuses um, Hermione. I mean, I, I'm assuming anybody who watches that seriously will be. I can't, it's hard for me to watch it. I mean, that is a brutal scene. It's not an idea, we participate in it, we're involved in it, like we are in any movie or any story. We watch a man accusing a wife of doing something she's not done. How many, how many husbands have done that to their wives? How many wives have done that with their husbands? The pain that we cause each other. So it's not an idea. It's, it's, an, it's something experienced. We go through it. And in that sense, it becomes more one with us than an idea. That's my point right now. Sorry, I'm laboring. but So just for example, just to see if I can... When Leontes comes to Hermione, remember when she's playing with her son and her son starts to tell him the story. He said there was a man, he's going to tell him a winter story. And then Leontes walks in and he says, take my son away. And then he accuses, um, he accuses Hermione, remember. Um... This is on page 27 of Winter's Tale. Remember, she's. Um, Lemieus is starting to tell a Winter's Tale a story, and Leontes comes in and he tells the, his lords to take the boy away because he doesn't want the boy to see what's about to happen. And then he accuses her of adultery. She's shocked. She doesn't know. Where did this come from? You know, no prayer. I mean, one day her husband's okay, and their, their life is fine, and the very next moment she's being accused of adultery. So, I, I can't believe all of us haven't had these moments. Maybe not as large as this, but. He accuses her, and then she says, line, page 27, line 110. There's some ill planet reigns. I must be patient, till the heavens look with an aspect more favorable. Good my lords. I'm not prone to weeping, as our sex commonly are. The one of it which vain do perchance shall dry your pities. But I have that honorable grief lodged here within my, you remember if you, she was perfect for the role, I thought, I and mean, she very understated, a beautiful woman, very gracious. So, <coughs> whatever she does is understated. There's, um, I, I think, I, I don't know if I told you, my, uh, my son teaches at Ave Maria, and they did Winter's Tale last year when Suzanne and I were there. I didn't like, they took Mamelius, they wrote him out because they wanted to shorten the play. Take Mamelius out and... He's the prince heir. He has to go to understand the significant part of the significance of what Leontes has done because he's not gonna have an heir. The kingdom's gonna die. Take Lamellius out of the play and you lose that aspect. And the other thing I thought was really badly done is they showed Hermione being spiteful. You know that when she's answering her, her husband she's got spite. in. There's nothing of spite in these lines. Absolutely none. This is as Christ-like as anything we've experienced in our readings since we began, but I have that honorable grief lodged here, which burns worse than tears drown. Our, our assumption is she admits it. Most women would cry. She's not. She has this sense of honor, and she knows something's wrong. There's some ill planet reigns beseech you all my lords, she beseeches, beseech you all my lords with thoughts so qualified as your charities shall best instruct you, measure me, and so the king will be performed. king's will. Um, (coughs) She has resigned herself um, to what's happening. um, Um... I mean, it reminds me of St. Paul's patience, or Stephen. <coughs> she's being accused. She's being brutally treated right now. Um, her response is patience. And then Leontes, a big whiner, shall I be heard? He doesn't like the fact that his wife's what she's saying is gaining credibility. You know, among the lords, he wants to stop it. Shall I be heard? Reminding. This is still page 27. Who is it that goes with me? Beseech your highness, my women may, remember she's pregnant, so she's got a point to her stomach. She, she wants help because she's going to deliver a baby to their child, their child. Beseech your highness, my women may be with me, for you see my plight for us. Do not weep, good fools. These are her ladies in attendance. Do not weep. There is no cause when you shall know your mistress has deserved prison, then abound in tears as I come out. This action, I know, go on, is for my better grace. But you, my lord, I never wish to see you sorry. Now I trust I shall. My women, come. You have leave. Here's the point I want to make. How many of us? I'm going to say men and women. I can't read these, li- these lines because my habit is to take them in. The, this woman uh, I have carried in my heart since the first time I read these lines. I was so taken with them. What man or woman can read these lines and not be affected with them? I mean, won't, won't we be strengthened one day under some trial to say, do not weep, good fools, uh, when you shall know your mistress deserve prison then abound in tears, as I, I come out, this action I now go on is for my better grace. How many of us enter an action saying, this grace will make me better, this suffering? I'm speaking for myself and I think for most of us, most of us want to do everything we can to run away from suffering, to get out of it. That is to experience, to hear words like this so that they become a part of us because we participate in them is different than having an idea about suffering. I could say all of us suffer, that's an idea. We all have ideas about suffering. But to hear these words spoken, to take them into us, the exact words, to hear the spirit of them, to participate in them, it seems to me can help change our lives. So this whole notion of participation is not small, it's really real. We can, we can know things through ideas abstractly, we can actually go through them. And I know all of us in this room, most of us are seniors here, so are all of us, that the older we've gotten, the more that we've gone through in our lives, the more we experience, it, hopefully, the wiser we've become, the more capable of loving. So, l- literature can deepen our world because it, it draws us into t- it as experience, not as ideas. Okay. That's the first. Um, now, <coughs> the second. <coughs> you know that the, that, the, that the principles guiding both Paulina and Hermione are faith, hope, and charity. They heard the oracle, they make this clear, repeated in the play, they, they heard the oracle, and the oracle said, Leontes will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. Now think about that, because lots of readers will simply gloss over that. It's on the basis of that oracle that Paulina and Hermione do everything they do what I'm trying to reinforce here is they are good readers because they don't go past that casually. They hear now that, that there's a possibility that what's lost can be found again. It's on the basis of that that they do everything they do. That's an act of faith and hope. How much does Leontes do in the spirit of faith and hope in the beginnings? Absolutely nothing. We've talked, I'll come back to it. He's, he's, he's in his head, rationalizing. The two women are are, are there's nothing they do that isn't guided by a faith in the gods and a hope in the gods. From that point on everything they do. All their answers to the men when the men go to Leontes and say get an heir the kingdom's gonna die. What men, what, what men won't do that? Under Obama? Under Trump? If affairs of state come up what are the men gonna do? They're gonna do everything they can? Clinton. To justify whatever has to be done to keep the state going, yeah. Pauline is telling the men fools. You're 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 counselling Leontes to go against the gods, and they're higher. So um, both of those women do nothing that isn't in the spirit of of the um, supernatural virtues—faith, hope, and charity. Okay. Now we've talked about the natural virtues often in this in our time together. Temperance, prudence, justice, fortitude. Temperance, justice, prudence, fortitude, courage, right? No. No. No, no, no. no, it's the four, those are the four natural virtues. <clears throat> justice, prudence, temperance, fortitude, courage to do things. Those are the na- those are virtues that we we by our very nature we should be Doing everything we can to fulfill this virtues: to be temperate, careful of how much we eat or drink or sex or the the things that we surround our lives with. Um, temperance, justice, giving what's due to another person, prudence, being careful of what we do, and fortitude, um, um, courage, doing hard things. You now, those are things we've been asked to do. Faith, hope, and charity are gifts from God. They're supernatural. We cannot command them. Yeah? The others are under our control. We're responsible for those. Wherever, wherever we fail in that regard, we're failing as human beings. There's a failure, whatever it is. The others we can't command. <clears throat> right? You can't tell God, I want this. We, we pray. We get down on our knees and we pray for those. Faith, Hope and Charity. Remember, and this is, the, this is the point that I want to underscore, faith means nothing, faith means absolutely nothing until we have no reason for having faith anymore. Hope means nothing um, if, if we don't have it exactly when we have no reason for hoping. Otherwise, it's not hope. Love, as Paul defines, as Christ shows it, is not love until we have a reason for not loving exactly when somebody does something to us and we hate it, that's when we've been asked to love. Father Flynn is constantly saying um, had, we want somebody to do this under these circumstances right now according to I mean the way we want them now and the manner we want them he, does, he goes through that almost weekly. What he's saying is the supernatural virtues are asking us to do things when we, when we no longer have a reason for doing them because then we entered the divine life of Christ. Did Christ come down here because we deserved it? Or, no, He came because we didn't and He's asking to love the way He did, which means we're supposed to love another person exactly when they don't deserve it. So we just can't have things the way we want them. We're supposed to love like He does. The great accomplishment of the medieval church was to bring the natural virtues justice, fortitude, together with the supernatural. That was our great task, to work with God to become better human beings. So what's going on in this play, I'm going to come back to this when I look at the men and women because the men tend to be in their heads and the women are guided by these supernatural virtues. Pauline and Hermione do everything they do in the spirit of hope and love and faith, trusting the oracle. <coughs> now, why, why is all this related? Why is this, um, supernatural <coughs> gifts—they're all gifts, right—like from God? This whole question of now, let me go back to Plato for a moment. You know, we've done this. I've done this so many times from the beginning. You're probably tired of each it, <laughs> but here's the one thing that Plato didn't see. As important as this allegory is, um, the whole motion in the cave, as Plato understood it, is from within the cave out. Right? Somebody breaks free, and we know f- from the whole, from the Platonic dialogues, that that person is Socrates. He's the one. If you don't know about these, but Socrates. It was said at his time that he was the only man. How do? It's been so long. He he was the only wise man at that time, Um, because he and Socrates' response to that because his reputation was the gods said he was the only wise man that lived then. His response was, if the gods are right and he can't he couldn't disbelieve the gods, it had to be because he was the only man who knew his own ignorance that was his wisdom because everybody else claimed to be smart. That's the tension of the platonic diary. Every time Socrates confronts somebody they always think they have the answers to things. He starts asking these questions and it, and it turns out that they don't know what they claim to. Then they get, instead of changing they get angry and <laughs> kill him. Um, but the, the wisdom is in knowing his ignorance and questioning. So the man who comes out of the cave comes from that condition Plato believes that there's a transcendent element to man, that that our our final end isn't meant to be here. There's a transcendent quality to the human soul. There's a transcendent quality. uh, the immortal soul, it's immortal. So he believed that the natural direction for all of us was out of the cave. But our arrogance keeps us here. And the Socratic dialogues were meant to break through that, to ask questions, to help us to ask. Here's the one thing Plato didn't know somebody came from this divine, this reality into the cave and brought a divine order in. So that, in one sense, is an opposite movement, right? And you all know who that person was, right? Christ. He took on our human form and entered our world. So He, he revealed that world that was obscure to Plato, and showed us a way out and he made it clear that the only way out of the cave even though we got some help from Plato was to follow him to love as he did. Socrates gives us a he's a precursor of that because he sacrifices his life he he really foreshadows uh, Christ. And the other interesting thing that Christ brings into this world is a divine life and because he's divine and human A power to overcome death. So, one of the things he introduces into the cave is the resurrection. And the resurrection, yeah. That's something Plato could not have known. Plato believed in the immortality of the soul, but he couldn't have known the resurrection. Now, remember, what does that mean? If you're a pagan and you're going to write works of poetry, you're going to, you're, you, the poetry, if you're following Plato, has got to show the eternal things in the passing. Tell the story, let it, Moby Dick. Go hey, back, the Iliad, the Odyssey. The Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Iliad are all pagan. We've, we've gone through them. My, my, I, my reading of the Iliad, we, for those of you who've been with me, you know that in, in the end Achilles steps out of that honor code he gives up his life, he accepts death and once he does that he does things he could have never done before. Nobody can stop him in war. So there's an intimation of a new life. He doesn't die at the end, we don't see him dying. It's almost as if Homer has this intimation of something great. Remember, he accepts his death and then he's not what... I, I, I try to present in terms of an alcoholic who accepts that moment when he says I'm an alcoholic. Whenever we accept our sins and accept death, what are we afraid of? Until that moment, there's always some fear in us paralyzing, keeping us back. So even in Homer, even though Homer showed a war exactly the way it unfolds, the way he put that together was to show something eternal. This man can do this great thing. That we learn something from that. So, you can have a glimpse of something eternal, even in the pagan world. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, yeah. But in Christianity, something else happens because of the resurrection. God is born in time, he goes to a cross, he dies, so he overcomes what Achilles did. Achilles accepted death, but Achilles could never come back from the dead. Because in the pagan world, the afterlife is this meaningless, hideous condition is that clear? So Achilles showed a great courage in accepting death because after, after death there's nothing. What Christ does goes well beyond that because he shows, as a matter of fact, there is life after death and he was the evidence of it. He's alive. He's, he's the Lord of the living. Now what does that mean for art? Here's the tragic paradigm you know that all tragedies go from good fortune to bad. And during at the crisis there's this turn, this peripatia, this recognition. Remember the, this moment of seeing? It, it, it always is a moment of self-knowledge. Oedipus sees that he was wrong. Achilles saw that he was wrong. For the Christian it means we come to a point where we admit I'm in sin. There's something wrong with me. I've got these sins. And in that moment, a turn takes place. We can begin to change our lives. It's like we're open, no, it's not like, my- we are open to God's grace. Then we can begin to work with Him. Yeah? Until that moment, we put ourselves above needing God, and then calamities happen everywhere. But here's the point. All tragedies end where? In death, Hamlet, Othello, we read those. Antony, Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, Coriolanus, Lear, Macbeth, Oedipus Rex, Euripides, all of his plays, all those end in death. Right. The interesting thing is that in every single tragedy there is implied a process of regeneration. Every tragedy deals with some wrong, some evil, some injustice, the disorders it sets in motion, every tragedy, right? Take Oedipus, go back to the very beginning. Oedipus was this great king of Thebes and he, he solved the riddle and he was idolized and he thought he had all this intellectual power, he could solve the riddle of the king. And he learns that the plague destroying the city was caused by some act, somebody. He wants to uncover it and two-thirds through the play he discovers he's the cause of it. He killed his father without knowing it and he's sleeping with his mother without knowing it. He's produced a child. So his child is going to be his brother. I mean, what's more hideous than that? Incest, adultery, I mean it's all there in Oedipus Rex. Murder, When he discovers that, he blinds himself. That's the way it ends. But the injustice has been answered. So every tragedy deals with some disorder, some injustice, some wrong. It's answered by the end of the play. So what happens at the end um, provides the conditions for a healthier regime to go on. The disorders are put away. Is that clear? We together? Am I going to... Okay? We together? Every play deals with some disorder, some wrong, some injustice. By the end of the play, it's answered. And you know that the, the cost of it is great. It's deaths everywhere. Always. In Hamlet, you know, everybody died at the end of the play. In Othello, lots of deaths. Okay? But the disorders are answered, which paves the way for a new order. Um, It implies some good that's going to come out of it. We never see it, it just ends there. Until Winter's Tale. In Winter's Tale, for the first time, an artist saw the implications of the regenerative process that there is is implied in the ending a regeneration to take place still. This is the only play in which it's done. Why? Because the pagans believed death was the end of things. Christians believe in a resurrection. That that life only fully begins afterwards. Yeah? So we have every reason to hope, every reason to have faith, every reason to love, beyond reason and what Shakespeare shows us in Winter's Tale is that the first half of the play is tragic. It's the end of the story, I mean, sorry, the Othello story, yeah? Othello, Iago works on him, Othello believes his wife is adulterous, he kills her. The difference is that in Winter's Tale, nobody's working on Leontes. That pang of jealousy comes wholly from within himself. That's why I think it's a greater play. He's absolutely, completely, wholly responsible for what happens. The end of the first half, his son dies. Antigonus dies. The Queen presumably dies. The kingdom has no heir. It's going to die out. The whole kingdom. So the first half of the play ends exactly as a tragedy does. And then suddenly something happens. You know from the reading. Um, And um, Antiochus takes the babe to Bohemia puts the babe down and is eaten by a bear. I have to read that because it's so funny. We enter, we enter the world of romance. In, in, in our terms, I, the, the secular rule will call it that, but I'll say, in entering the world of romance, we enter a world of the miraculous, of the sacramental, that holy things are going to happen. And then what we're going to watch is that all of the calamities, all these awful things that happened are answered in this extraordinary reunion at the end of the play. That's what Shakespeare does in Winters Tale. So it's an extraordinary, extraordinary piece of art. But at the heart of it is this. If the artist imitates life, right, he's imitating the reality. Plato said the danger is he can keep people in the cave. That the really great artists imitate reality but reveal something eternal in the passing moment. What Shakespeare's showing is that he's going beyond the pagan world because what's at the center of nature and creation is this power of resurrection of new life. So what he does, what he does in Tale, is something nobody no other great poet has done. Now, one last thing just to put it in perspective why art is so important for us. Remember because it helps us participate in actual experiences, not in thought, and experiences. Um, here's, the, here's the Jewish tradition. Abraham is called out by God. <laughs> you say, where's this guy going? What, <laughs> what is he doing? Abraham's called out by God, and it finally leads to the... The creation of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then finally the 12 disciples. Christ is born here, and um, the the tradition continues with Christianity carrying Judaism forward, because those are our beginnings. At this point, the Jews break off. This is Christ. This is when he's born. The Jews break off and keep themselves under the law. And you know from Paul that the effects of the law are death. One of the effects is still. Um, so the law is carried forward. Christ brings a divine mercy, a possibility for resurrection into human affairs. Yeah? Under the Jews were under the law, from this from this tradition, Islam breaks off. By the way, this is pointing exactly to Moby Dick right now, it's just curious That that wasn't my intention, but it's actually pointing out. Islam breaks off. It's under the law. Under Christ we bring, you know this from Dante, under Christ we bring the law and mercy together. Under Judaism they still live under the ancient law, the old law, and Islam. And remember, if, if you're defining your life in terms of law, or justice, law, it means you're going to be acutely sensitive to every injustice, everything that's not lawful. So the very nature of the law always puts us at war. We're going to be ready to avenge some wrong. There's no sense of mercy. There's certainly no sense of the divine mercy that we, that we have in Christ. Is, is, is that all clear? This is, okay. Here's the point. The, the Jewish people do not have a rich tradition of art or poetry. Neither does Islam. Why? One of it has to do with the second commandment, I think, the prescription against images. Um, But um, the other is, and this is so amazing, Christ came into the world and when he left, you know, the pagan world was very rich with art. We saw that. Homer, Virgil, all of it. The Christian world is rich with art. Why? Um, Christ is an image of the Father. Images are good for Him. Our church rituals, our churches are filled with art. One of my concerns, I get troubled when I see the church not moving forward with liturgical art or music. When I, when I, I want to hear poets and artists at work in our church bringing our beliefs into a modern form because that shows we're healthy, we're moving forward. Christ sent the paraclete, the spirit, to continue his work. If you look at the Christian tradition moving forward, it's full of art because art's reflecting a reality under changing conditions. It's always moving forward. It does not under Judaism or Islam. There's no spirit renewing. There's no, there's no idea of a resurrection. If there's any art, it will keep them in the past. All of Eastern Orthodoxy, if we go to the other side, if you look at Eastern Orthodox religions. I mean, I came, I was raised Greek Orthodox in mean, my family. If you look at Eastern Orthodox art, it's all geometric. It's platonic, it belongs to the Middle Ages. Their art has not moved forward. The Eastern world stays in the past. It's only in the West that art goes forward and it does because the Spirit is at work. Regenerating, renewing, revealing God at work now. That's why art is so important, because if we ever lose art, we lose touch with the powers of regeneration, of renewing ourselves, caring. That's why the West has always been so, we call it progressive, why it's always moving forward in a way that's not true for the East. So this whole theme of art in Winterstale, of the play ending in this chapel scene in which a figure is presented as a statue, an image of art, is suddenly steps down and brings new life and restores the health of this community. So this theme of art that's been with us from the beginning, the power of poetry, its prophetic power to reveal, to show things, and in this place to show the workings of God in the world, is absolutely crucial. Take it away and what do we have? What we've got are ideas in our heads. How, how powerful Ideas are powerful. I don't want to. I don't want to diminish. I don't want to diminish the power here. But take, take actual experiences away, of the kind that we have in art. What does that leave us with? It removes us from nature and the workings of the spirit. And so, this theme of art is not small. And in Winter's Tale, this is the last work we'll do on Shakespeare. It is one of his greatest works. And what he's doing is dealing with this power of art to renew, to reveal things and. Um, the central, I mean, the, the most important thing that's revealed in this work is the power of the resurrection. Here's this woman who's been dead for 16 years, <laughs> no, hope for the, no hope for Sicily, be without an heir until that which is lost. Now he's got an heir at the end, and not only an heir, he and Polixenes are reconciled, Camilla is reconciled with Polina, they've got an heir, there's that you saw the exchange in movie this this extraordinary moment when husband and wife after 16 years say things that have never been said in art before that moment is so so extraordinary I want to save it for next week but anyway let me stop here just for a minute and I, now I want to get to the text but I just wanted to cover this thing when we when we do next week the Wintersdale, I want to go to the end to that chapel scene and look at art which Shakespeare this is partly covering it all but I wanted to set it out. I want to look at some other th- things right now but any questions about this? I, I know that was probably too abstract maybe but. <clears throat> any questions about why art is so important for the West? We think about art and think of oh, escape literature you know, entertainment or fun, it's a break from work.
2: Well I was struck when I had gone to Europe the first time going to the and going to the churches the art—it just jumps off the walls. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was like uh, they, they, it almost looks like a, a, an art museum. Yes, and, and then, the whole city. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just uh, I, I was just I said without those images we wouldn't understand our faith See because we didn't have words to say our faith but we had images so it's like it's uh, it's until you see that you don't get the connection. Yeah.
0: So, what okay. what 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 it's a. It's a I have to be careful my words here. Um, troubling, I guess, is, it troubles me some that we don't have enough artists moving forward. If you go to Rome, so much of the art is in the past. You see, there are places where you see new art. I mean, it's contemporary art. Um, um, one of my friends, I should, I'm going to bring it sometime. I think I'm going to bring it. The, the, the dear friend that, that was a colleague of mine at. College of Notre Dame in California, where I taught for so many years. He was the head of the art department. He was a painter. He and his wife were artists. His collection of paintings is extraordinary. He died five, six years ago. And the woman who oversaw his estate had all of his photographs of his art. I, David, David Ramsey was his name. We, Suzanne and I, we were close friends. so We had dinners with them often and had dinners in their house. He went up, he showed me the, um, the loft. In, in their house and showed me the paintings. I was stunned to see them. I'm, you know, Maybe I was stacks, though, um, and Suzanne wanted one of them. If you, I mean, they were wonderful. We have one in our house, the one on the stairway. I don't know if you noticed, those of you who were at our house, it's the Moses with the snake. Um, but I saw his pictures, and I never realized how, ex- I'd never seen the extent of what he did, and I looked at those pictures, and the first thing I thought was, I'm so sad that David didn't get the recognition he did, he deserved, because he takes all of his paintings are on biblical themes. They're right out of the Bible, but they're not. They're not Renaissance. They're not 18th century. They're not 19th century. They're very modern and they're stunning. And it, it's art like like that that we need. But where are they? Where are the artists today? We need artists coming out of the church anyway, sorry. Well, I was just gonna comment
1: on what you said about Rome because I, I had that same expression or feeling when I when I saw these churches. And then I come back here and I've visited many churches around, you know, wherever. And the modern church tends to minimize the artwork. We it's tend to, to so true. these, you know. I mean, even our statues here in the church when we remodeled the church from the old church. All at once, they were gone, all the <coughs> old art and whatever it was gone. And then it slowly, I mean, it took us forever to get Mary and the Sacred Heart back into the church. And I'm like, okay, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was. <laughs> <coughs> no, I think
0: right. that's I've a seen
1: our modern minimalizing, and I don't like it. I,
0: I think that's one of the effects of Protestantism. It's this yeah. un, discomfort with images. Yeah. Um, the catholic is is encouraged to to enjoy his senses the body that it's part of who we are so if you go to if you go to catholic europe you'll find what tom was describing, what you're describing it's it really is true there's a a, a diminution it's a it's a cleaning up a little bit and simplifying yeah it doesn't it makes me really sad. I am I, so grateful whenever I hear a new piece of music that is really good, um, because music does the same thing. When you're, you know, when we're in church and there's a good, I mean, there are times that I get teary just singing a song. You know, that some of these songs just take my breath away. But we so desperately need artists today in our in our for our culture. Um, and there's such a scarcity of or good ones. Most, most of the modern artists are secular artists. They take us into a secular world. You know, drugs, despair, nightmarish internal words, but there's no sense of grace. The, the greatest art has always been an art that, that deals with sin and answers it with some grace. What music, painting, um, and the secular world is, has made us super aware of horrors and sins, depravity, but it's not been as good showing us grace answering them. So, but...
1: When I was in Italy this fall, um, in the northern part, there are many things that I think, I think the name of it was sacred mountains, but they had these in lots of towns, and they were chapels, um, religious areas, where there were lots of pictures, and the explanation was these were developed in the time when people couldn't read, and it was teaching the story of the church, through the pictures, through the art, through Mm -hmm. the frescoes, through all Mm -hmm. of this. And what strikes me, Bob, is now you're talking about needing something modern. The problem is that you've got so much noise in this current Mm -hmm. world that it's hard Mm -hmm. to break through. And we don't have the artists that are, at this point, breaking through that to show us in, in the olden days, we can say it's because they didn't read. Now maybe it's because we don't see and we don't listen. And so there's a different, we go back to the old art, but that isn't.
0: It doesn't always really speak for it, us it, in I our mean, age. It, it, we can
1: appreciate it, but it, right, it doesn't break through that noise yeah. barrier.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're waiting
1: for an
0: F on our iPhone. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting, to, just to follow up that remark for a second, um, if, I mean, you put it, I mean, you express it so well and so to the point, if you look at, at everything going on in the Middle Ages, everything taught, everything. If you look at the, I mean, if you, if you, if you went to a medieval cathedral, anywhere, I mean, probably the chapel too, I've not been to the ones you're talking about, but if you take any of the medieval cathedrals, they're intended to teach. Every aspect of that medieval cathedral has some significance to it. Right. So it, it isn't verbally, you know, but in terms of an image, something is representing something that they knew at the time and that we've lost sense of because we just live in our senses, we don't think about what, what something means. Or, But every aspect of art taught cathedrals taught. You could do a lecture, somebody could give a lecture out a cathedral and point out things that would amaze you, you know, just because there's not an aspect of it. Oh, look at the art in the
2: windows. I mean, mm-hmm. You just walk in and you just dumbfounded by it, yeah. the colors and mm-hmm. the images.
0: And yeah. Okay, let's um, let's I want to, um, before I, before, um, um, I think what I'd like to do, um, I want to touch on two themes that are brief. Um, I don't want to go into them just, just as a way of calling them to mind so that you're aware of them, and then look at some of the, really the more serious things here, the regimes and the masculine and feminine. Um, and I, I want, to re- I want to get this out on time. By the way, I forgot to say this. I really apologize for Sunday night for making things as late. You guys were so patient. I would understand it if you didn't ever want to talk with me again.
2: <laughs> and
1: yet here we are. I know, I know. It's because you're forgiving
0: <laughs> And I don't deserve it. Anyway, just I'd um, huge pardon for making it late. I, um, I should not have read the the uh, the Eliot poem, because that took some time. And there were people from these groups, these new groups that had come, and I, I did that thing on Plato, because I really... I there's so much behind what we're doing here, and I didn't want them not to know that, so it just lengthened the evening a lot. But anyway, pardon, please. Um, Two, two things that I just want to touch on and then focus on, so I'm going to, I want to go to the book and read some things here. Two, th- two things. One is the theme of clothing. It would probably be something you wouldn't even notice and think about except a number of really important things happen with clothing. You know at the end, Perdita puts on clothes that dress her up and um, Florizel puts on clothes that dresses him down, because um, he, can't, he can't let it be known widely that he's the son of the king. He knows it will get back to his father. Um, there are all those wonderful exchanges between them, but they're, they're, they're not in clothes that reflect who they are. And you know that Atollicus, the thief, the, the, the rogue figure at the end, changes disguise, puts on disguises, and at the end, Camilo asks him for his clothes in order to dress down Florizel and Perdita. But there's that scene from the movie, if you remember, when, when, uh, when um, Autolycus puts on that robe and acts like a gentleman and he's sort of foppish, I can't do his motions, but you know, this sort of foppish look at me demeanor, spirit he took on. It's important not to overlook those things. That's Renaissance stuff, so we look at a gown and don't think anything about it. But if we if we if we place it in current times, imagine somebody taking on a, a new job in, let's say, Trump Tower. Or you give me some you give me something else. A new job in Silicon Valley in, in Apple. Let it be Apple. Um, can you imagine that without this this man or woman entering that job without being tremendously self-conscious. So look at me, see who I am, I'm with them, I'm, you know, that when we enter the work field and there's some status to that field, the effect on the ego, <laughs> the, the, I mean, I, I don't know that any of us escape it when we're, you know, 25 or, you know, when, we, when we're trying to make our way in the world. But but Shakespeare is clearly parodying that. He's showing that there's this tendency to identify with prestige in a way that increases this vanity. It's it's a little bit like saying, look at me, I'm with Trump's tower, (laughs) or or Silicon, or Apple. So there's this this encouragement to vanity and pride that comes with um, status in the political world. So and he's aware of that. And he's making fun of it. He's playing with it at the end. The other is that I don't want to miss this because it's it's so it's so interesting um, in view of what goes on. We talked about I I talked about the two regimes on movie night just briefly. I don't we don't have time to go into it here, but uh, remember that Sicilia is Sicily, it's in the south of Italy. You all know where that is, don't you? Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, I, I forgot. Um, the information, the handouts for next week are there and there's a, um, a, a short guide on Moby Dick that, that breaks down structurally the chapters and I've highlighted some chapters because if any of you get bogged down and for some strange reason you don't read the whole thing. (laughs) I've highlighted some chapters so that you can single some chapters out because some of them are really important. We can't do justice to the whole work, but I'm going to try to do what we can in six weeks. So be sure you get those. Um, And in the red folder, if any of you didn't get the Winter's Tale study guide or the maps of, of Europe that show the relationship between Sicily and Bohemia, they're there as well okay and they're there on the red folder that's from they they you sh- you should have that from Sunday if you guys picked up some stuff mm-hmm. then. and remember sicily is an image of a mature Renaissance city of the kind that Shakespeare would have been aware of in Italy with, the, with Florence or Venice and if you know anything about history you know the, the wealth of art that was already in those cities, the, the academies, the, the learning academies that were forming, forming under this new resurgence of Aristotelian platonic thought that was the rena- Renaissance, rena- rena- a recreation, here's this regeneration That was a time when the Middle Ages seemed to come to an end and a new thing was happening. It produced this new commune that we've talked about, this commercial regime. Florence was the prototype of the modern, that's America in its beginnings. This renewal, something new happening. Sicily is an image of that mature city reaching its end, like a ripe fruit ready to fall. It's mature, it's sophisticated, it's full of artifice. The two lords say as much in the beginning indirectly. Bohemia is a pastoral world. This is pastoral. It's bucolic. It has to do with rustics and shepherds and sheep uh, shearing. It's much closer to nature, less artificial. This is a renaissance city. It's artificial far more a product of the mind. That's why Leontes does what he does in that speech that I, that I read. I'm going to read it over again in a minute. Um, but the point I want to make here is that even though these two regimes are different and it's, it's here where Perdita grows up, she stays close to nature and she always shows her royal nature. She can't hide it. She's of royal birth. Shakespeare's showing us that who our parents are matter, that something of us gets passed on. It's only because she comes from this world back here that Sicily um, can avoid its death and renew itself. Okay? so On the surface they look very different, but, the, but there are similarities in this respect. There are problems in the ruling families in both regimes. Leontes goes nuts. When Perdita and Florizel Florizel are are there at the sheep shearing and Polixenes comes, remember he's in disguise because he's heard things about his son. When he first sees Perdita, he is absolutely taken by her. He has nothing but good to say. When the two lovers are going to um, contract, remember they bring the father in to contract to marry, to marry. And uh, Polixenes is drawn into that, and he starts asking him, does your father know this? And Florizó makes it clear that he doesn't, and Polixenes tries to urge him, to just, tell your father, you must tell you can't go ahead. And Florizó gets adamant, he says, no, I will not. And it's a real stern... Um, and the interesting thing about Florizel, I don't want to miss here, it's really clear that his love of Perdita is greater than his love of succession, because he gives it up. He makes it clear, he says, I... I renounce all of this. Nothing will ever happen to make him inconstant to that love. That's how great it is. So he's willing to lose it all, which is clearly a good on his part. When Polixenes says tell him and Floricel says no I won't, Polixenes takes off his beard and then he says then divorce. Yourself. At that point because he, his pride is injured, he has nothing good to say about it. Perdita uh, uh, Perdita. He calls her foul names. This is the woman that moments before he had nothing but good to say. So so what Shakespeare's showing is that this is this is modern um, suburbia. This is out of the city. This is a city, I mean this is suburbia. What Shakespeare is showing is you can never escape evil. Atalychus is picking pockets in this world, you know. He, he's scamming people everywhere, stealing from them, and um, Polixenes puts Perdita and the shepherd, the father, the presumed father, under an interdict. He says if you ever, if I ever see you breathe a word, he he will torture him mercilessly. So there's this tendency in men who have power when their pride is pricked, to lose it. I mean, what more is to say? They, they almost go mad, both of them. So, so there, there's this, even though he showed us two very different worlds, the common thing they have in, the one thing they have in common is this sense of when you, when you when you combine power and pride, something bad's gonna come out of it. And, and it's picked up with the shepherd. Because when when um, Polixenes con, uh, condemns his son and says, "I'm going to cut you off," and if you ever see this woman again, he, he says to the to the father, the shepherd, um, and and his son, the clown, he will torture them in an awful way. The father that turns to the son, the clown, and says, "See what you've done." So, I mean he's now he's worried he's gonna die a bad death so he's blaming his son now it's not as it's not as outrageous it's not as powerful it doesn't have the intensity that the Kings have but once again it's a father responding to the fact that he's gonna lose his life right so it's interesting that that fathers don't come off very well in this in this play I mean Shakespeare's (laughs) looking at what happens when men have power what it does to their loves we already saw that in the beginning with and now we're seeing it here with the uh, and the shepherd. So, just a quick note on those. Now, let me, let me, um, I want to get us out here in the next few minutes. So, we are, it's, I can't believe it, we are so far ahead of time from where we usually are. Hmm? <laughs> it is a good thing. I'm just, I'm amazed because I feel like what I've covered took much longer than this. So, I'm, I'm actually astonished. Um, let me stop for a moment. I'm going to look at the women and the, um, the women. Um, just briefly to, to sum this up. Sicily is mature, it's ripe, it's artificial, it's ready to fall. The Shakespeare shows Sicily under the aspect of winter. It's winter here in the beginning. Mamelius is going to tell a story for a winter time. The tale is called a winter's tale. I think winter's tale here means a time of penance. Sicily will be under a 16-year penance. And and notice this is so important. Uh, I want to come to this when we look at um, Pauline in just, just one minute. Late in the play, when the lords meet, they're trying to persuade Leontes to have an heir, to have a son, to remarry, and Paulina won't have any of that. She says no. And it's clear that he's already promised her that he will do nothing without her consent. This king is learning to be obedient to a woman of an inferior status. I mean, she doesn't have the stature the or the authority that the lords have. All the lords are saying, have a, get married and have it produce a child and heir he won't do anything um, without her consent. So for the first time in the play he's learning obedience. There's no other way to put that. Um, Pauline is guiding him as we know she's waiting on the Oracle. So Sicily is, is revealed to us under the aspect of winter. Bohemia is rendered to us under the aspect of spring. It's a time of renewal. The sheep are being sheared. Um, um, Florida's handing out flowers. This is close to nature, this is renewing, this is dying. Those are the two regimes that we've got. Um, And remember in that exchange between Perdita and Polixenes when she hands the flowers and she won't give him gillivores or carnations, um, and he says, but that's natural. if you practice an art to graft flowers, to produce a new kind of flower, you learn that art from nature. She says, I will not do that, I will not put my shovel in the, I will not breed those kinds of flowers. It's really clear that she doesn't want to use um, artifice, art, she, she trusts nature to take its course. And it's interesting when you think about it because the men tend to use the practical intellect, get done, this has to get done. The women, as a rule, in the, in the play tend to be more able to wait. They're, they're more able to suffer things out. They trust more. Um, is that clear? I think that holds up if you look at it. I'm just going to leave that with you guys to ponder what you, what, what you make of it. I think there's some truth to that, that men tend to be far more efficient. We've seen, we saw that with Hamlet, we saw it with Othello, The intellect wants to get from here to here. The women are more nurturing, they're more caring, they're more able to wait. They wait, they're trusting, they're acting on faith. The reason means getting something done. So the differences here are really interesting and they tend to line up this way. Uh, um, Perdita won't breed a flower. And she says, any more than I let this man breed on me if I painted my face. She's not going to make that act. She trusts nature, what she calls "great creed," what's called in the book, "great creating nature." Great creating nature.
2: I kept looking at that phrase I had, no idea
0: what it meant. Thank you.: Well, the women, are, you know, it's really interesting. It, Hermione, so attached to her son. We don't I mean the, I mean this is so curious. God it's painful in some ways remember in the opening scene when Polixenes and Hermione go off and um, Leontes is watching them and that's when he's struck by that jealousy that instinct for jealousy he, he, he's convinced in that moment that something's wrong. What does he do with his son? Are you my son? He starts looking at his face. Um, he, that is he begins to doubt. Remember I said this before And I've said it all along, particularly from the time of Dante forward, reason's one of the greatest gifts we have. St. Thomas would say it's the greatest natural gift that we have, the power of reason to see. And reason and free will can't be separated. But by itself, reason is dangerous because it can kill itself, it can destroy itself. If it doesn't rest on something higher, reason can take itself away. We see that in the opening scene. He looks at his son and begins to say, are you my son? He begins to doubt him. So the masculine intellect um, can hurt itself. So in those opening lines, um, 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 sorry, this is on page 9 and 10. At the top of 10, he says, And art thou my boy? I my good Lord. It affects." He begins to look at the features on his face to see if he can trace out because he's doubting everything, remember? And down below he says, how now, you wanton calf, art thou my calf? That habit of the mind to be skeptical, to doubt something, here is peculiarly masculine. Hermione looks at a boy and she loves him. There's something nurturing in woman. remember she he's telling the story, it's then that Leontes breaks in and accuses her, but... I just want to read that um, on page sixteen, after Hermiones and Polixenes left and Leontes by himself, this is the point where he's going to ask Camilla to poison Polixenes' friend to kill him. and Camilla's first response is, "You're wrong your your queen is faithful, and he he's ready to fight for it and then Leontes begins to push him on page sixteen and he um, he says, "You've never spoken so ill, so against yourself before." Leontes' response is whispering nothing, is leaning cheek to cheek, meeting noses. He goes on, horsing foot on foot, skulking and cornering, wishing clocks more swift, hours, minutes, noon, midnight, and all eyes blind with the pain, with the pin and web. But theirs, theirs only that would seem unseen be wicked is this nothing why then the world and all that's in it is nothing the covering sky is nothing bohemian nothing my wife is nothing nor nothing have these nothings if this be nothing Shakespeare's showing the, 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 the power of the mind to annihilate being to, 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 to I mean we all know that man or woman I, there's not a question in my mind that women do this I hope everybody's clear on that we, we twist something and make it something that's not to fit our minds in our pride. We want to make the world over in our image. When we do that, we destroy being. It can be being, it can be a flower, it can be a son, it can be a wife, it can be a husband. We're making something to be something that it's not. We're taking something away of God. So um, we see the masculine intellect at work, and, and we watch it work through the whole play because the first thing he does is as soon as Camilla leaves, he takes that as evidence that he's right. He will turn every fact. He's a traitor. He, he betrayed me. In the meeting when Paulina comes with a babe, he says to Antigonus, you set this up. He will, he, he, will, he will make good things bad. He will turn them to make them something they're not. Everything that happened when the Lord started arguing with it, he says, you're all traitors. So the human mind can take something and it can use all these reasons to make something that it's not. To show how smart, to show how right he is. The human intellect, what what we can do. The feminine is nurturing. When Hermione's with her son, we see that. At the trial scene, when um, the the, uh, oracle's read, and it says the or Leontes is a tyrant, Hermione innocent, um, Camilo, a loyal friend, and that which is, he will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. The news comes back, the son died right at that moment. What's Hermione to do? She can't hold her knees. I mean, she just collapses. It, it's like all life was taken out of her at the news of her. So and these are pure forms it's not women do this too I'm, i hope we're all clear on that women do this too and there are masculine elements of, in um, women and there's feminine elements in men but i think what shakespeare's showing us in some bare way that the that these go directly to some real differences between men and women in our sexes so okay last last thing and then we'll stop So the men tend to urge for practical things in the political realm, women tend to be nurturing and far more given to waiting, far more patient, um, these two women are, are guided by their, by their trust in God. Um, now I'm going to raise a shocking question here. I'm going to read some passages from Hermione and, and Paulina. I'm going to focus on Paulina. Where does Paulina get her strength? Let me. I, I don't want to answer right now, but I want to put that question out because to me, lots. I, I these these two women are two of the most remarkable women in all of literature I know. When when Hermione says um, the, this thing I go on now is for my better grace and. I hope to never see you sad, and now I'm afraid you will." She's almost more concerned for him than what the man that she loves, to watch this happen to him. Extraordinary love. And Paulina, because um, you know how angry she is with the Lord, she tells the Lord, don't come near her when she brings the babe in, And, and she's scathing in her remarks when the Oracle, when she comes out to give the news that the Queen is dead, um, and then at the end she's the one that conducts everybody through this ritual. Remar- so Remarkable women, just remarkable women. Um, but, but I want to ask the question, where does Paulina get her strength? Because you've got a contrast of women and in some ways I, I can't elevate, what in, in different ways they're both remarkable. You can't say enough about either one. In, in two different ways, Hermione in, in her capacity to suffer a wrong, Passively to you know to to wait, Paulina for the way she takes control of things. Um, I, to put this strongly, she loses her queen presumably. I mean that's what we're left with at the in the courtroom scene right. Hermione's dead. She loses Mamilius the heir. Her husband takes the babe and is eaten by a bear. She's never going to see him again. This woman has lost everything important to her, and yet she's the one next to Leontes guiding him. How many women would do that? I mean, I'm asking the women: Let somebody kill your husband. How would you feel about that guy? What would your response to him be for the next 16 years? What she does is nothing short of remarkable, and I can't, I can't see her any closer. If she's like Paul and she's like Stephen, except she's alive. Stephen was stoned to death. You know, when he said, love them, um, Pauline is living with the man that killed her husband. And she's counseling him constantly. So where does she get her strength? Just hold on to that question for a second. I want to read some passages. Um, I want to cover this before we leave, so I'm going to bounce around a little bit here, but um, quickly. Turn to page 62, because if I don't do this now, I won't remember This is just an illustration, going back to this question of art, of what Shakespeare does with his art. This is when the clown, remember when we're in the pastoral world? Um, In the pastoral world, we're with clowns and shepherds. We left Sicily um, and we're with um, Lowborn. Um, um, On page 62, the clown is being sent off to market to buy things for the sheep-sharing fest. So he's trying to tally things up. Now, we've been together now through Hamlet and Othello. You remember the eloquence and the nobility of Hamlet's language and Othello's language, extraordinary myth. Or Portia in the the courtroom scene, the eloquence of her language. This is the clown, page 62. Let me see every leaven weather tods. Every tod yields pound and odd shilling, 1500 shorn what comes the wool to. This is a, tall, like a sizing up the clown because he knows he's going to, what's the word, filter? He's, he's, gonna he's going to steal, steal from him in a second. Mm-hmm. I cannot do it without counters. Let me see. That's like somebody today saying, give me my calculator. I, <laughs> <laughs> I cannot do it without counters. Let me see. What am I to buy for our. Sh- he goes on and on. But just listen to the language. Let me see. You can go down to the notes to look at. It. I'm not going to do it here. But let me see every 11 weather Todds. He's figuring things out. Shakespeare knows the language of rustics. He can go to a lowborn and speak in a colloquium idiom as easily as he can go to a noble diction in Othello or Hamlet. His range of language, I mean, think about this man, the language arts that are involved in his play. He can put words into a lowborn that are the words of a lowborn. He can, he can put words into somebody noble like you, are, those of you who are with me, but I read those passages of Othello they're among the most beautiful passages in our language." And I said, is, what's he doing? Because Othello says, I'm rude of speech. I, su- I suggested that that's, that's not a lie, it's Shakespeare's way of showing that there are things inside the human soul that we cannot express, we cannot do justice to the dignity of them the way a poet can. So it's not as if he's lying or It's his way of showing there's this great nobility that's so hard for us to capture. When we want to say something, I mean, you all know that. We find ourselves at a loss for words. Um, He's so capable of expressing a whole range of human abilities. Um, Turn to um, this, because I won't get this done. I've got to do this today. I, I may read it next week but page 52 Antigonus has the babe and he describes the, the dream he has on page 53 I'm not going to do this, I'm going to save this for next week because it will be one of the divine things the, 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 I think the gods are at work here but it's Hermione coming to him in the, in the dream but here's what I want to read um, the shepherd, the father, comes on stage and he watches and. Um, Um, Antigonus um, running off stage followed by a bear and he hears the cries of the sailors on the ship that's being um, washed over by the storm and they're all dying. So a retribution, a retribution is being exacted on the court right now. And it's gonna, I mean he says as much, Antiochus says he won't be able to go home again. Um, Hermione says that in the dream um, and she feels sorry for him. It's, it's, a, momen, it's a moment of the, of the numinous, the dreadful of God, the dread that we face for our wrongs. He's, got to, he's given a taste of them in the dream. So we get the dream and the Shepherd comes on and then he's describing what happened um, the, just a moment before, so the 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 shepherd and his son meet on page fifty five. And the son, the clown says, "I would you did but see how it chafes, how it rages, how it takes up the shore, and that's not to the point. Oh, the most piteous cry of the poor soul, sometimes to see him and not to see him. Now the ship boring the moon with its mainmast, and anon swallowed the yeast and froth. And then for the lancer to see how the bear tore out the shoulder, but in both of these descriptions, from the shepherd earlier, and in this one, we keep getting this sense that all heaven and earth don't, aren't easily distinguished. It's like the ship is raised into the heavens and the, with, the, with the waves and the storm coming down so that the two are confused for a moment. It's an interesting, in terms of art, it's an interesting image of the greater sense of justice that's going on in this moment, because the divine's coming in in a moment of retribution. But to make an end of the ship, how the poor souls roared and the sea mocked them and how the poor gentlemen roared. And the bi- Now, we've just left Leontes' court um, yeah, with these noble tragic sympathies. And it seems that we can feel nothing but pain. We just got the news that, that the son died. And then finally, Leontes says, Apollo's man, he is a grief struck then news comes that Hermione has died, and he, he, he's overborne by grief. So we have all these tragic noble sentiments at the loss. The court is wiped out. There's no promise of an heir. He's lost his daughter. And then we get this. The clown describing what had just happened. But to make an end of the ship, to see how the sea flap dragged it, but first how the poor souls roared, and the sea mocked them, and how the poor gentleman roared, and the bear mocked him, both roaring louder in the sea. Who can who not hear that and not laugh? I mean, it's just, it's so funny. Shepherd, name of mercy, what was this boy? Now, sir, I have not winked since I saw thee. He was horrified by it all. The men are not yet cold under water, nor the bear half dined on the gentleman. He's at it now. The last image we got is of a bear dining on, a, on Antigonus. And he says in a moment later, he'll go look at the, at the body to see how much of it is left from dinner. What's Shakespeare doing? Why is he doing this? Did some people just say comic relief. Shakespeare never... That's huh? That's what I thought. I thought. Well, he, he never just does comic relief for comic relief. Yeah. When there's a comic relief, it always relates to the larger action. He never does that for itself. Never. There's always a significant, autolycus is tied to Leontes, and autolycus is like a comic opposite mirror of Leontes in some ways, he just bilks everybody. What Shakespeare's doing, it's not just comic relief, it's that he is, he's, he's helping us to begin to distance ourselves from grief because we know if we're too close to it, our emotions overwhelm us. So he's doing poetry what I've been talking about. He's helping us to step back to see that these things from one perspective, which are overwhelming from another, are comic. Because if we looked at them with eyes of faith, we wouldn't look at them in the same way. So he's teaching us to see a humor from one perspective in things that the last thing that people can do is find some humor in it. He's enlarging our vision and he's also giving us the means to step back, to look at things without being overborne with grief. Yeah? If you read the rest of that scene you'll see it, but I love this line. Now that I've not winked since I saw these sights, even he's overborne for them. The men are not yet cold under water, nor the bear half-dined on the gentleman. (laughs) He's not half-dined on the gentleman. (laughs) Anyway. Okay, last few lines and we'll leave it. Where does Paulina get her strength? Turn to page 33.
2: I love your word, excoriate. Say? I love your
0: word and your notes,
2: excoriate, Paulina. Excoriate?
0: Yeah. yeah excoriate. That's just such a yeah. great word. I'd forgotten that I used it. Oh. I, must, I must have been somebody else then. <laughs> Those words don't come to me anymore. That's, that's how I, I sometimes I think about you guys and think God what you must be suffering I mean I just lost it I just I just lost it I'm, I'm not the person I was then God, I can't hold on to these things she brings the babe to Leontes and Leontes can't sleep you all know that in Shakespeare's plays when a man can't sleep it's because he's carrying something he's guilty about almost always um, I have to look at myself pretty closely when I don't sleep.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: she brings the babe and the men won't let her in um, on page 35. Madam, he hath not slept tonight, commanded none should come to him. Not so hot, good sir. I come to bring him sleep to such as you that creep like shadows by him and do sigh at each of his needless heaving. Such as you kings in their heaving the men are feeling sorry for him. Yeah. Pauline is excoriating yeah. <laughs> Um It's people like you that creep like shadows, you sigh at each of his needless, he- needless heavings. She's not going to, what's the word when Father what, sorry, says, give him slap. What's the? What's that quote? Give him slack or something like that? Cut him, him a break. So, yeah, cut him a break. Got, yeah. right. Not, not <laughs> close, not no, close. Not needless heavings. Such as you nourish the cause of his waking, I do come with words as medicinal as true, honest as either, to purge him of that humor that presses him from sleep." She pushes her way by him, and and Leontes is constantly, get that witch out of here. Um, You you cowards, you men. He accuses Antigonus of instigating the whole thing and and accuses him of being a cuckold. I mean, he finds every bad name to humiliate the, the, the men because they're not cooperating. Um, On page 36 at the bottom, um, Leonta says, Force her hence, Paulina, let him that makes but trifles of his eyes first hand me. They're going to lose their eyes if they get near scratching scratch them out. On my own accord I'll off, but first I'll do my errand, the good queen, for she is good, hath brought you forth a daughter, here tis, commends it to your blessing. She goes to the babe. Here's the feminine again, I really believe. She goes to the babe. Women do this better than men, I think. She goes to the babe and she picks out every feature that resembles his and tenderly points them out to him. Um, On page 38, it's yours and might we lay by the old proverbs to your charge. So like you, tis the worst. Tis the worst. (laughs) Poor thing that... This is. I mean, she has nothing good to say for this man at all. And then she picks out every feature. And then finally, she leaves and um, go to. Um, let's see. On forty nine, um, this is just after the oracle's given the word, and we get the news that the sun dies. And then they take Hermione off, and then she comes back on page forty nine. What study torments, tyrant has not for me? What wheels, racks, for me. what torture can you devise for me that will be greater than what I'm about to tell you? She goes this long list of tortures, and then finally says, "This not so. No, late to I answer, but the last is untried." O lords, when I have said, so after this long crying out against him, she says, "O lords, when I have said, cry, woe, the queen, the queen." the sweetest, fierce creatures, dead, and vengeance for it not brought down yet. I mean, she, she... She will not let a second go without pouring salt in his wound. And vengeance not yet? I mean, like it should have been five minutes ago. Um, anyway, she's, she's this extraordinary creature. And then turn to um, page 96. Ninety-six, page nine or ninety-seven. This is when the men are trying to persuade Leontes to um, have an heir. On page ninety-six, she says, "Too true, too true, my lord. If one by one you wedded all the world, or from all that are took something good to make perfection, woman, she you killed would be (laughs) unbearable." The men are going, "Why are you using words like that?" Why is she using words like that is she is she being malicious and spiteful here I'm going to say no you can, hold on I, hold on Leontes, I think so killed she I killed I did so, but thou strikest me surely to say I did it is bitter it is as bitter upon thy tongue as on my thoughts now good now say so, but seldom she is trying to keep alive his memory of his place in her death, that he, because the men are all saying, "Forget it, Mary, get on, get on with your life." Here are the men, get on with your life. Um, this is so important here. Just notice this. This is 16 years now, so and she's clearly been doing this for 16 years. Leontes cannot of his own. I'm going to take a minute with this. with a question. Leontes cannot of his own take himself out of his penance. Why not? He cannot say, I've done my penance, I'm not going to marry again. He has to follow her. Why not? Is that clear, what I'm asking? Because
1: Paulina keeps reminding him.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's the obvious answer, but spiritually, why can't he? Step outside of the play for a second.
1: Are you getting, like, to confession? Like he's going to ask for forgiveness?
0: The problem with, as for most of us I'm assuming, the problem with Leontes is his own will. I mean, he's had his will. I mean, most of us, I'm going to make a generalization, most of us are pretty selfish, I think. then There's something all of us have to struggle with in terms of our own selfishness. When we put our will forward, how much of it is generally for ourselves? Even if we don't want to admit that or see it. The problem is he's a king and he's had his will and he's done real harm. Take a look at any of us with our sins. With a will like that, can we take ourselves out of it? I keep hearing the words in the Mass, only say, only say the words and I shall be healed. For the longest time, when I first came into the church, you know in the Mass before communion, only say the words and I shall be healed? It struck me, why that? We're waiting on Christ, for obvious reasons, because if we're left to our own will, we wait on Him. What's Paulina doing? Waiting on the gods. The great danger for Leontae is if he comes out of it by saying, I've done my my time, he's back in his own ego. It can't be up to him any more than Paulina. That's what makes the women so amazing here. They're they're not going to act on their own. What they're doing is waiting on the gods. How many of us in our world are encouraged by the culture we live in to have our own will? And yeah, 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 absolutely. And what do we do with it so often? So here, she's um, she's 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 reminding him not to marry. And there's this wonderful line um, where um, she says on ninety-seven, "There's none worthy to f- take her place." Down a few lines 45. "Tis your counsel, my lord, should." should to the heavens be contrary, oppose against their wills. Care not for issue, the crown will find an heir. This is that moment of great faith. She's saying to him, when the men are saying, get an heir. She's saying, you're opposing the gods to the men. And then she says to him, care not for issue, the crown will find an heir. Great Alexander left his to the worthiest. So his successor was like to be the best. Um, On page 98, Thou speakest truth, no more such wives, therefore no wife. One worse and better used would make her sainted spirit again possess her corpse. And on this stage, where we offenders now appear, soul vexed, and begin, why to me? That is, if he did marry, this ghost of Hermione would come forward and say, why me? It would be a terrifying moment. Um, She would say that to the woman. Is that clear? One worse and one better. Could be better or done would make her sainted spirit again possess her corpse, she would come into her body and on this stage where we offenders now appear, Leontes and whoever the wife would be, the new wife he took, and soul vexed, angry and begin, why to me? Why would you do this to me? Again, virtually. So practical reason all around them saying, marry, Mary, Mary," and Paulina saying, don't, wait, wait for my consent. He is having to learn to give his will to another. He's a king. Before any, and all the men are saying, "How stupid!" Imagine. I'm, I'm just assuming. Bring it down to our life, our jobs, our families. How often we meet the same situation ourselves? Where practical reason will push to do something, and we're left here with um, Paulina saying, "Wait." Here's the question I want to end on, and I just want to ask you. Just take a few minutes, and we'll stop. Where does Paulina get her strength? How are we to understand it? Or, or to put it differently, why are the men such cowards? The Lord's, I mean, she calls them cowards. It's, she says, such as you, you shadows. Or, She has no good to say about these men. Why are the men so, so uniformly, cowardly? And why? where does she get her strength? What's going on here? What is Shakespeare doing with this? Well,
2: they've adapted to the king's power, uh, over-adapted to his power, because they don't want to lose anything. They're afraid of losing their conditions or their state of life, or you know, so that they don't have the
0: guts to stand up to yeah. the power. Do you all agree? Anything more? They're all under the king. Antigonus knows that the babe is his, or suspects he has to do the king's bidding. He take he's going to die. He's going to pay for it. This play is such; it just exposes everything about. I mean, everything that Christ came to expose is sort of laid bare in this play in an amazing way. I I mean, I think think Tom's absolutely right. They're under the king. They won't do anything because to do something would put their lives at risk. Paulina stands outside of that world. She's not bound to it. Um, She doesn't
1: have anything else to lose.
0: Yeah, right. Well, she's gonna lose her husband, but, but she stands outside of that dependence. And it, I, don't, I just, I want to put this sort of starkly because it seems to me like the male-female contrast that he's working with, that he's doing something similar here, he's putting it starkly. Um, she's outside of that world. She's, she's not been formed by its influence. The men have been raised to be in that position. And so it, it seems to me what he's showing is that it, it cultivates a kind of dependence, um, even a cowardice. Put that in the modern world today. I know this is going may raise some hackles, but let me do it anyway. But women have entered the workforce today. Now they're wards of the state. The, t- the traditional family structure before had always been like this. Here's the family at the center of culture. Everything that went on was protected. It's the source of life. Think about our modern world, by the way, if the family still has that place anymore. The man always stood here protecting the family by dealing with an outer world. Now women have entered this world. How many women once they be, because now they're wards of the state, they are, they are wage earners of the state, their dependence is on the state economically more and more. How many women will have the courage to to put their lives at risk, losing a job by standing up where they shouldn't? I believe some will. Human being, men will lose their jobs. That some men will stand up at the risk of their jobs, and some women will. But, but as a cultural condition, how many women will stand up when there's some injustice going on um, that will cause them to oppose whoever's doing it at the risk of their job? I think what Shakespeare's showing us is, is the the this. Remember, in in, in centers of power, in Bohemia with Polixenes, and Leontes um, in Sicilia. when I say that? Polixenes is in Bohemia. Yeah. Leontes in Sicilia. That once power enters our human lives with our pride and our dependence, it creates certain problems, certain things are going to come of that. And it seems to me what Shakespeare's showing in Paulina, and I, I, I don't think her name's an accident. I, I'm really convinced that it comes from Paul. I mean, he, he means us to think about Paul. Remember, Paul stepped outside of that world. He stepped outside of the whole religious world. There was nothing he was afraid of. He was in jail. He, I mean, there, there was nothing he feared. He was put in every conceivable kind of position. That's Paulina. She, she just stands in, She stands in, in immediate relation to God, waiting on that oracle in everything she does. That's absolutely foreign to the men in this play. They're defined in terms of state dynamics, politics.
2: But she has the courage, those natural virtues you're talking mm-hmm.
0: about. All of them. Oh, okay. Wouldn't you say? I mean it seems yeah. to me she's but she they're all they're all infused with supernatural virtues. So they're changed. They're not in the natural order anymore. I mean she's prudent you can say she's temper and let me ask this. There's a, a professor at UD in that, in that um, chambers at the castle scene when she brings the babe. His, his response is, his description of her is that she loses it, that she's just irrational and lost it. Where are you guys on that? Do you think so? I love her. <laughs> oh, I do. The men are cowards. The men are cowards. I just think she's, I think she's as rational, prudent, I'm gonna, I mean, it's gonna expand our definitions of proof. I'm mean, gonna, because she's got a larger concern. She's not imprudent. And temperamentally, she's doing what she's doing. She's telling, courage, courage in a man, you pick out your sword and do these men away. Courage in a woman, same thing. I mean, so I don't find any of the natural virtues lacking in that woman. I, given the circumstances, there's nobody more virtuous in that room than she is. She's courageous, she's, she's mindful, she knows what she's about, she's wise, she's um, just because she has to defend that baby and her queen. She's, she's one of the natural virtues is there. I, I mean, the colleague, I just think he's, men who, who see her that don't see her, I don't believe really well. I think she's an extraordinary figure. So we have Winter's Tale. It's one of the last works that he wrote. It's one almost nobody reads. If you go into schools, they'll read Lear and Hamlet and the comedies. And in my mind, this is one of the most extraordinary works of art that's ever been produced. What Shakespeare's doing in this play is just nothing short of amazing to me. So next week, we will look at the last scene, the, the, the chapel scene. And I want to deal with this question is there a divine action? Is there a divine action? Are the gods involved? Remember in Homer we saw the gods. In a Christian world we can't if you if you're being true to appearances this is what we see what's right in front of us, yeah. The question is is something divine taking place there? Are the gods at work working with what's going on to help bring us to this ending? if the gods are, where are they? So that's the question. In fact, I'm going to give you, going to give you a test. We're opening with a test next week. <laughs> opening question's going to be, I'm not going to give you a, but I'm going to start with that question. I want, to, I want to hear your thoughts on that. Read that last chapter, that last scene, sorry. Read it. And If you can read the Pastor scene where Autolycus is changing clothes and Camilla's, you know, plotting with Florizel and Perdita, read that because it seems to me that's where things start. Read that and ask can I see the gods? Are they at work here? Because remember, the whole purpose of the, our work together was to see if we can find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. Is he there? Is he at work? How do we understand the end of this play? Okay. Thank